Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, or maybe I should say Bonjour, as it's our World Cinema <laughs> Special. That's the bit of foreign language you know, isn't it, Steve? Yeah. I can, <laughs> Hola. I can order a couple of beers. In, I can order a couple of beers in Spanish. Oh, okay. And that's, that's, and that's about my limit. I can order five in Czech, because we went as a group of five. Pet pivo prosim. There you go. There you go. All the peas. Yeah. Were you in Prague? I was in Prague. There we go, yes. even more peace for you. <laughs> but yeah, so we will be anyway. we will be looking we'll be looking at our favourite countries for foreign films and our favourite uh, world cinema actors and actresses. Uh but before that we have got uh the news and the quiz. Uh I'm Steve Norman, I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. Owen Hughes. Hello. And Jerry McCauley. Hello. Yes, so the quiz then this week starts off in 1951 with The Butler's Night Off. Ooh. And we've got a six-year gap to 1957. Oedipus Rex. That's Oedipus is in Oedipus Complex. Oedipus Rex. (laughs) Thanks for the clarification. Uh, 1973. That's not a, you know another big gap. That's just you know next one I'm doing. The horror at 37,000 feet. Uh, Owen, is it John Lithgow? It's not. No. Oh, oh no! Shit, that was a Twilight Zone thing. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> 1974. Big Bad Mama. What the fuck? <laughs> that sounds like an Adam Sandler film. 1977. Kingdom of the Spiders. 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture oh, Okay Jerry oh. Yes Jerry Well I guess Shatner It is William Shatner oh. <laughs> We came a long way to that Jesus We did uh, There we go What? what so go, go back over some of those names there Steve They sound amazing films that I need to find he was in loads uh, of sword and sandals things, wasn't he, Shatner? Mm. Uh, uh, the Butler's Night Off was one of them. Sounds like a riot. <laughs> if that's not a comedy, if that's not a comedy, then you know, it's just the Butler going to a pub. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a documentary. <laughs> it's actually the really depressing look at his life, yeah. being a servant. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there was Oedipus Rex, which sounds like a incestuous dinosaur to me. <laughs> very good Steve <laughs> hey should we get on to the news yeah, yeah. 
brings a whole new I... meaning to Jurassic Park 4, that, doesn't it? Does it? Depends <laughs> <laughs> I've written, Steve. Anyway, the news. Uh, yeah, news. Uh, well, we've got um, get your breaking ticker Sky Sports news style along the bottom of your podcast manager app software thing because we've got breaking news literally in the last half hour. Um, Sylvester Stallone has taken to Twitter to confirm that Harrison Ford will be in Expendables 3 at the expense of Bruce Willis, who, according to Sylvester Stallone, is lazy and greedy. Um, Yeah, they've had a bit of a tiff. Although Willis Willis isn't on Twitter, is he? He doesn't strike me as the type. No, he's just... So so he's not going to be able to fight back or anything like that, so it's quite one-sided. But, um, yeah, basically, um, Harrison Ford, yay. But, uh, yeah, oh, God, the, the planet Hollywood, tr- Holy Trinity are fracturing at the seams, and it's it's disturbing for me. I don't oh. care. I thought Spendables <laughs> 2 was rubbish, and I just couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked Expendables 2. Oh, I preferred it to the first um, one. Miles I, yeah. better than the first. I'm not actually that bothered about it not having Bruce Willis in it. No, I think uh, after um, I watched, I rewatched Looper this week actually because it was one of my favourite films from last year and it's just been put on Love Film Instant. So I thought I'd give it a go and make sure it's sort of held up as well as I thought it did. And everything in it does, apart from Bruce Willis's performance, who I thought was just is a bit shit in it actually, which was a shame. Ooh. And uh, and given the, the interviews he's been doing recently and the, the awful films that he starred in. Mm. Stuff that Bruce Bruce Willis shouldn't be in shitty straight to video action films. He's Bruce fucking Willis for crying out loud. So yeah. he's just taking the money, not giving a shit about promoting the films he's in. He's basically happy to take people's money just to have his name in a film. Which is that is that Bruce Willis, the seventh best movie cop of all time? That's him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In some I wouldn't even put it, I wouldn't even put him seventh based on the last few outings, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's oh well, yeah. I, to be honest, you do get the impression that Sylvester Stallone still actually wants to make great films. He might not succeed all yeah, the time. I think, it's but there's there's, yeah. there's there's still a real yeah. You know, this is the man who fought against all the odds to get Rocky made and you know there's de- he definitely still wants to m- entertain people but also have some level of credibility credibility about the work he does yeah, and, and people and always forget that Stallone sort of wrote and, and drove Rocky and Rambo you know that, mm. it was, he was the creative force behind it he wasn't just the actor mm. and I think he doesn't get much credit for that but you know he's, he's in terms of the impact he's had on on cinema and Hollywood and culture, you know he's he's massive, and I think he's very careful to to try and do that where he can as well. You know, he's he's aware of that and he wants to keep it up. He doesn't just want to make shit, although unfortunately he has made a lot of shit since mm-hmm. the sort of early nineties. But you know, yeah, it, it, yeah, Demolition Man though that was a great film. So it just reminded me of Demolition <laughs> Man, which I've not seen in years, and I really oh, should get around to it. Five not too long ago, I reveled in it. Yeah, oh, yeah, but yeah. So that that looks quite interesting. Or oh, I did quite like the. Um, I saw Owen talking to someone on Twitter the other day about having a kind of East meets West mm. thing for. So it, it, pitch that to us, Owen, because I thought that was really interesting. Oh yeah, just people like um, Tony Young and uh, 
you know, Andy Lau and you got Jet Lee coming back for it. It was I can't remember what the actual conversation was, but it was the idea that you could have because you know in the uh, first film Jet Lee's one of the good guys and Dolph Lundgren's a bad guy. Well, he mm. becomes a good guy. Well, in Expendables 2, Dolph Lundgren's a good guy. Jet Li just fucks off for the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> you could just have Jet Li coming back as the bad guy, you know, bringing yeah. an army of all these Asian uh, action stars that are about. You've got Kung Lee, who's quite an up-and-coming one, and uh, who's the uh, Korean guy? Byung Hun Lee, who's in lots of stuff as well. Okay. So, you know. you got Eco Ways. Eco Ways, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. An that'd East be versus cool. West kind of Expendables film. Yeah. I'm all over that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's the breaking news. And the other thing that did happen uh, since, yeah, just to apologise for last week's once, you, those who only ever listen to the podcast <laughs> might wonder why there's been a two week gap. It's because technology is shit. Something happened and we lost our entire podcast last week. Um, so in the two weeks since we've been off, there I know this is mainly film, but big news in British television. We do touch on television now and again. Uh, and that is we have a new Doctor in the British BBC sci-fi series, Doctor Who, who is, thankfully, Peter Capaldi, uh, the Scottish genius. Um, initial thoughts, for including those who actually don't really like Doctor Who. Let's, let's hear what you've got to say. Good, good and interesting choice. Because mm-hmm. the last... Since Doctor Who has come back, the actors that have played him have been relatively young. Mm. They've been getting increasingly mm-hmm. yeah, young, and they've, and they've each been get, one. And they've yeah. been getting younger. Um, so you've got Christopher Eccleston, then David Tennant, and then Matt Smith, whereas mm. Peter Capaldi is older, got a bit more of a, a back catalogue, if you will, as the other actors mm. at the time when they took, took on the role. Yeah. He's got the... You know, he's done more acting yeah. essentially he's been around longer and he's been in Doctor he's, Who before as well <laughs> yeah. he's tortured wasn't he or has he been actual Doctor and Who he was, oh, no, he he was, was in Doctor an episode Who, yeah, yeah the, the Pompeii episode they yeah. do that quite a lot with his assistants though, don't they I think yeah. all, all of them other than Rose because obviously he was the first one were actually in an episode of someone else before it's a good way to audition I suppose yeah. um, but anyway yeah, inter- interesting choice and what I think will ultimately be a good choice uh, I know a lot of people are probably hoping that he'll play the doctor like Malcolm Tucker, but he, he won't. Obviously, it's a it's a prime time not. it's yeah. a prime time children's television program essentially. But yeah. I'd, lo- I'd love to see a comic relief sort of little special as him doing it as Malcolm Tucker, just for just for five minutes. It'd be great. That, yeah, that would be nice. I did see an interesting tweet, and I feel really bad that I'm not crediting the person because I honestly can't remember who said, but said that um, Peter Capaldi is probably the first person to accept the role of Doctor Who to avoid being typecast, um, which was quite an interest. Because usually it's people wanting to escape Doctor Who after being typecast mm. as Doctor Who. So, um, he's the yeah he's the oldest Doctor since the oldest Doctor to get the role since the very first Doctor William Hartnell uh, back in the sixties. So that's interesting. And also from a personal point of view, for me. Um, my Doctor Who, the one that I grew up on, was Sylvester McCoy. So I've been looking forward to a slightly miserable old Scottish man as Doctor, uh, as the Doctor for a long time. He seems so. to actually be a Doctor Who fan as well. Because I think Matt Smith wasn't when he took on the role, and he had to do a lot of. Mm. He is now, and he had to do a lot mm. of, you know, looking into it, researching it, watching a lot of the old shows. But um, yeah, Capaldi's a proper Anorak Who fan. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. A, a letter, isn't there, from when he was 15, and he wrote into yeah. the. Yeah. the um, 
Radio Times or something about yeah. Yeah. how much he loved uh, Doctor Who and how brilliant it was the BBC had made this TV series. Yeah. Have we seen what everyone seems to be going a, a bit mad over? That in World War Z, World War Z, he was mm. credited as WHO Doctor. <laughs> That's quite cool. <laughs> I like that. Although um, Neil Gaiman, just in the last day or two, has announced that a uh, a black actor was offered the role but turned it down. Um, but he doesn't say when that happened because uh, people have immediately said that this this was after Matt Smith, but mm. he didn't actually say it was then. It could have been before Matt yeah. Smith. Um, but that's because people are still talking about and the other yeah, Idris Elba was can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, Idris Elba was always going to be too big to do Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he, is not, he is too big now, but yeah. he, when he was first being linked with it, he probably wasn't. No, although I'd still love to have seen Patterson Joseph. Uh, yeah, I think just before Matt Smith, there was a big, big push for Patterson Joseph, who, for people who don't know, plays the Johnson in Peep Show. As that's to yeah. me his most famous role. Um, he there was a big push for him, and I think that would have been a really interesting choice. But yes, good luck to Peter Capaldi. Um, and it, actually, I've I've really struggled to get through the most recent series of Doctor Who, but this has reawakened my need to get to the end of this series so I can actually watch. Because you can't imagine him playing watch him like start a, as like an upbeat kind of you know David Tennant, Matt Smith kind of. No. I, I, I'm expecting world weary Scottishness, which would be brilliant. I mean, I could not give a shit about Doctor Who. I think it's it's. it's <laughs> Just kids sci-fi. I'd rather watch pop up and stuff, but it's it's a good it's good fun though, Jerry. Come on, something so fucking miserable. <laughs> really, the few episodes I've watched, I just got bored. There was the odd interesting bit, and then I just got bored. You know, oh, Jerry, I, Jerry, I mean, do one thing for me. Do one thing. What? Because it's pre- basically a self-contained episode. What? Watch the episode. I think it's about series three of the new lot called Blink. Okay. If you've not seen it, Which it's almost completely uh, self-contained. Uh, it's it's the first time that the Weeping Angel statues are. In, it's actually, I think, it's one of the best spooky ghost stories I've ever seen on te- done on television. It's just a brilliant piece of time travel and ghostly story type. Uh, it's just it's just one of my favourite bits of television from the last fifteen years. And I don't, and you don't need to know what happened before or after. It's just really nicely self-contained. And there's actually hardly any of the Doctor in it as well. I'll track um, that down, but my my point anyway. Yeah. How come no one is really that seems to be that bothered that they didn't choose a woman as Doctor Who? Because to me really? that seems like a logical step. You know, can't change gender. No, he can. Uh, Neil Gaiman in apparently in an episode I've still not seen yet in this uh, called The Doctor's Wife, they made it canon that he could change gender. God, this is the geekiest we've been on here for a little <laughs> bit, isn't it? Um, but apparently in the most recent series. They have it has become canon that the Doctor can choose to regenerate as a female if he chooses. Well, there was or, the or not choose, but he can. His, his mother and his friend and whatever with time travel. Yeah. Some of them episodes. So yeah. it's not like Time Lords have to be male, obviously. Mm. No, just, no. I just don't see why it's the 21st century. You know, they've done it so in the same way for so long. Why mm. it doesn't even seem to be a much of a consideration for them, really. Why don't, why don't we have the next James Bond as a woman then, Jerry? Why don't we do that as well? Well, fine. I couldn't really Jane do Bond. Let's have fucking Jane Bond, shall we? Let's <laughs> piss all over tradition and oh, institution God. and everything. 
I hope Caitlin Moran doesn't listen to this. She's going to come after <laughs> I you. I hope she does. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I, I wouldn't be massively opposed to it being a female James Bond either. You know, there's uh, as long as it's done right and it's and, and it's done to you know play to the actor or actress's strengths, then it's going to work. Bit of an odd name for an actress, though, isn't it, James? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who's a code name? <laughs> Oh fucking hell! Let's get right. Yeah, let's move on. Shall we? Yeah, let's have let's have a break, get our heads together, and then come back with the um, uh, what we've been watching part of the World Cinema Special. So for this part of the podcast, uh, the, the podcasters will be going around the chosen country and recommending some films from that country. But I am. A bit of a novice when it comes to world cinema. I've watched some films from different countries. Um, I've got, you know, I'm going to put it to the other three who are more educated than me in this area. Why I should watch world cinema? Now it's not because I don't want to read subtitles or I can't read. I know I give off the impression that I'm thick on here sometimes, but that's genuinely not true. I've done very well in my GCSE. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes, sometimes I sit down and. On multitask while watching a film, so I haven't really got time to keep reading what's going on. Um, and there's great films made in the UK and in English language. So tell me, you three, James, Jerry, Owen, why should I watch world cinema? What's so bloody good about it? I'll I'll, I'll field this first if you don't mind, gents. Um, firstly, uh, if you think of the entire population of the world, what we've got about nearly about seven billion six, now. Yeah, nearly seven Too billion. Too many, if you okay. ask me. <laughs> okay, well, let's just colour for you. Let's set six, okay? Let's set six billion. He's in a really um, mood. And spread across that six billion are a certain number of incredible directors and writers and actors, okay? Evenly spread across those. And you choose to only, you choose to limit yourself to the ones that might have grown up on certain patches of land which speak a certain you know, the dominant language, but, you know, the, a minority of the world speak. Yeah, but, yeah, but if You're I, missing out on yeah, so I, much. If I was German, heaven forbid, I'd probably watch the majority of stuff. If it wasn't dubbed, I probably wouldn't watch subtitled films, you know, in into German. I'd just watch German stuff. <laughs> because that's just a, so good. It's not... It's not for me, I don't think it's to do with the, the quality, supposed quality or budget or reputation of Hollywood or British films over, you know, any other. I think it's just. Me. I think there, there is. I think there, Yeah, I think there is a, a point that Steve's making, which is closer to being sort of culturally identifiable. And if you're from yeah. Germany, then German films are obviously going to make a lot more sense to you. You're going to pick up on a lot more of the references. Whereas if you're German and watching a French film, some of it might pass you by. And that's fine. That's the same as being British and watching a German mm-hmm. film or being American and watching a British film even, you know. I don't think that's just related just to being in a foreign language. Um, but like, I, I, I'm with James. You, you, you just miss out on so many good films just because you just don't want to read it. <laughs> Yeah, and we're not saying that's the case with Steve. Not saying that's Steve's the case. Busy. I'm just saying, yeah. in like yeah. in a general rule of thumb, if but some people are like they that. They are, yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, 
fair enough. Sometimes I just can't be bothered to read a film. I'd rather li- just listen to it. But, you know, we've all been like that and sat down and looked at the sky planner and gone, fuck me, I just don't fancy watching that. It's going to take about two hours and it's all in foreign language and blah, 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 blah. I'd rather just watch something that's just quick and easy. That's Everyone feels mm-hmm. like that. I just think if the, 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 the people who specifically go out to not watch something because it's in a foreign language... They're just they're just missing so much more, and I I just feel a bit. This is the most patronising I'm ever going to say on the podcast. I feel a bit <laughs> sorry for them because yeah, I think they're just same here. they're just they're missing out on stuff, and yeah, it's just, it's yeah, it's a bit sad, really. I think yeah, well, it's just the sort of the challenge to to the standard conventions that you're used to. Is really useful from a you know just from a, a perspective of watching more Hollywood films. Once you've got that sort of external, different way of doing things, you, you can start looking at Hollywood films differently. Mm. And also yeah, start noticing influences because there's a lot of you know a lot of Hollywood directors are not philistines. They will be watching films mm. from all around the world, and you start seeing things filter in from from foreign films, and it's nice. But I think most of us will have grown up without watching too many foreign films. You know, you you tend to reach a certain age before you really start watching a lot of foreign films, and it's that sort of stage of initially, you know, watching foreign films when all you're used to is sort of Hollywood or you know certain types of British films, which I'll come on to in a second. That's that's a big change and it's a big shift, uh, you know, as a medium and sort of uh, in terms of the potential of what film can do. And when you see some of these foreign films, you suddenly realise that it, it is an art form and there's just so much more that a film can be than what a, Hollywood, a standard Hollywood big ticket, you know, going to make lots of money in a cinema film is. And I think it's really useful for people to do that, even if they don't plan on watching a lot of them, just to make you watch Hollywood films in a, in a more informed way. Yeah, yeah, uh, and just going back to the thing, there's just so many absolutely brilliant films out there that you'd be missing out on. Like, so, for example, The Raid. Yeah, uh, and it's not just about these esoteric kind of two people talk to each other for two hours type foreign films that you know would be the the stereotypical the you know, look at those type things. If you're an action film fan, why haven't you watched The Raid yet? Because it is one of the finest action, and you know. The fact is, a lot of these countries make films in every kind of genre as well. So, horror fans, um, there's some incredible uh, modern horror, you know, Let the Right One In, for example, incredible foreign horror film, um, which is one of the best vampire films I've ever seen. But because it's in Swedish, then, you know, loads of people haven't seen it and they had to make an American remake of it just to get people to go and watch the bloody thing. Um, I think a lot of people as well sometimes don't really realise they've seen foreign films. If it's in, mm. if they're in English or they've been dubbed, mm. or you know, people who might only watch action films, just using your example, and mm. you say, well, okay, so have you seen Fist of Fury? Uh, mm. Have you seen Drunken Master? Well, yeah, well that's yeah. that's world cinema. You've seen <laughs> films mm. made in a foreign country, as well as stuff yeah. like The Others with Nicole Kidman. As a horror film mm-hmm. from Spain, yeah, but it's, it's yeah. in English, so yeah. <laughs> um, well, the um, basically uh, Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western trilogy yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is essentially world cinema. It might have an American actor in the lead, and they might be talking English, but you're essentially watching something distinct. That's something from a completely different culture. Mm. Um, 
and you're exactly right. Sometimes you don't realise quite how much world cinema is already seeping in. What I will, just to clarify, what we're going to do in our what we've been watching this week is uh, the three of us who have seen quite a lot of world cinema, we've decided to test ourselves by trying to watch a film from a country that we've not seen a film from before. Just to, So we've tried to expand our our minds as well. And listeners, this is a really, really useful exercise in that you will realise you've seen films from countries you did not realise you'd seen them from. And you think, oh, well, I've not seen one from there. I'll, I'll get a film for that. Oh, no, no. I've seen I fact. have, yeah. <laughs> did that far too often. <laughs> It's amazing how, how many films you've actually seen from around the world. My, uh, just a quick point as well in terms of world cinema. The sort of obviously it's a bit of a woolly definition, but I was thinking about this, and I think a lot of UK films should be considered world cinema as well, just because there are a lot of UK films that are, that are very challenging as opposed to the sort of standard Western mm. template. You know, this is England, for instance. Is yeah, that's not Hollywood film. No, that, a lot of Ken Loach's films. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's a there's a whole sort of tradition in, of UK cinema that that is very different to that, and I think a lot of people have probably seen those films and and seen that they're a bit different and, and felt that they're British, and and there is a whole world of things that are like that, but UK stuff, yeah, sort yeah, of anyway, can can be considered world cinema. No, no, you're definitely right, and you've got uh, Shane Meadows as well. Um, yeah, no, definitely agree. Australian well, films as well. There's a few Australians mm. that you would think are oh, actually that's nothing. I mean, the proposition. Yeah. It's yeah. not really a typical <laughs> Western mm-hmm. film, is it? I mean, yeah. I mean, like Animal Kingdom, for instance. You know, there's, there's yeah. a whole bunch of, of films that are English language, and he, he, you know, obviously there's American films that are very different as well. Like, I mean, let's not be, yeah, let's mm-hmm. not be a, a lot of American filmmakers who are making really challenging, different films. Uh, you know, and you could point to sort of Canada, New Zealand, all sorts of places, but it's more about a mindset, isn't it, really, than a, a geographical thing which I'm sure will come on to in the next section. (laughs) Okay, well, I think when people like James recommend me Holy Motors, it doesn't really... (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I didn't recommend it to you, Steve. (laughs) I pretty much knew that you'd hate it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, yes, so James, why don't you kick us off? What country are you reviewing films from, and what films are you reviewing? Okay, so, yeah, I... like everyone else doing this on the pocket, I had a bit of a struggle. I thought, oh, right, okay. Oh, Poland. Oh, no, I've seen something from Poland. Yeah, and I went through a load of countries. It was actually getting quite difficult not to be big-headed, but it was getting quite difficult to find films that I hadn't seen at least one from. So um, I did... I sat down to watch The Battle of Algiers, which is an Algerian film from 1964, which is a really acclaimed film, but I didn't get a chance to watch it all, um, which is really bad. So what I have watched, and I've... I don't know if it's cheating a bit, but I've gone for um, a Quebec film because they're almost all time. It's a French-Canadian film essentially, um, but it, it is kind of it's a story of their people. Um, it's they're quite an autonomous region as well, um, and it was subtitled. So, <laughs> so I, I'm I'm saying that French Canada, uh, Quebec counts. And I saw a film which was out last year called Starbuck. Um, it's inspired by a true story, basically. It stars um, Patrick Huard as a... He's a 40-something complete slacker, loser, works for his dad's butcher firm uh, as a delivery driver. He's got a 
girlfriend in the police who he's just got pregnant and she wants nothing to do with him um he's uh, he owes 80 grand to gangsters and he's unsuccessfully trying to grow pot in his apartment everything's going horribly wrong for him um and then all of a sudden there's a class action lawsuit because when he was in his 20s he gave sperm to a sperm bank over 600 times and due to a mistake at the sperm bank, all of that sperm was used, and he has now fathered over 533 children. Uh, don't you get £10 um, a go for that? Uh, you got more than that. He earned 25 grand for his 600 goes. So someone I, do I reckon I could earn more than that. <laughs> Just because yours is so damn good, Steve. Yeah. No, no you, only get paid, you don't get paid the quality, do you? You get paid per... <laughs> Oh, I see. Right. Okay. You you could earn more than that. I I get you. Yeah. You youngsters with your with all your energy and stuff like that. Um, get a bucket of that. Takes me a week to recover these days. Um. But yeah, basically, there's a class action lawsuit, and 140 odd of the children, um, have filed a lawsuit to find out who their real dad is, and there's this legal dilemma between um his right to privacy, um but these children's right to know who actually their dad was. So he gets given the files of the 140 children who want to know who he is, and he starts taking a bit of an interest in their lives as a, a hidden guardian angel. Um, and then the film kind of goes from there. He, it's quite heartwarming. He learns a lot about himself. Um, it was It's very funny in places. I, I, what I'd say is... Um, the worst thing and this really sums up everything we were just talking about this is already being remade by Hollywood with Vince Vaughn in the lead role okay there's no need for that just watch this film and read the fucking script beneath the picture I'm sorry this I can already tell that it's called The Delivery Guide this remake it's going to be atrocious um either it's directed by the same guy who did this film uh, but it's still no sign that it's going to be any good. What well, this is a lovely film, really some really nice uh, performances. There's some real great pathos in it at times. It it's not afraid to go five or ten minutes without a joke, and it's not afraid to get a little bit sentimental at times because it's just it's pulling you along with the story. It's drawing you in. I I found it a really really enjoyable film, and it exposed me to. An area of the Western world I hadn't really been exposed to, apart from knowing that some of Arcade Fire were from Quebec. That's literally what I know. Some of Arcade Fire are from there, and they talk French. That's all I know about Quebec. So I got to see a bit of a world that I didn't really know about. And that, to me, that's always a great thing about world cinema, is it's not just about watching some great art, but it's about, it's about learning something about a people, about a culture, and about a place. And through quite a you know, kind of nice, easy comedy, I actually learnt quite a lot about somewhere, which I wouldn't do from, you know, a Hollywood easy comedy, if you see what I mean. So it felt like it rewarded me a little bit more. And I I really, really would recommend it. It, It won a lot of kind of audience prizes. It's not necessarily hugely... It's not been critically acclaimed. It's not been panned by any uh, stretch of the imagination. But um, a lot of the film festivals it was entered for, it won a lot of the kind of audience awards and the People's Choice Awards and things like that. And it's a very, very likeable film. And it's the kind of world cinema film that quite often gets a bit of crossover appeal. Um, it didn't really happen with this in the UK. But uh, I'd, I'd definitely recommend it. Great performances. Made me laugh a lot. Um, and... 
yeah, I had a lot to say about parenthood as well, which is, which is always good for someone like me who's still struggling day to day to get through the complete minefield that is being a father. So, yeah, definitely recommend it. Really enjoyed it. And I think you'd like it as well, Steve, ultimately. I think you'd find it funny. Okay, <laughs> Owen? Um, okay, I, I wanted to watch a few different films just so I had one to talk about that I knew I would like rather than just kind of mm-hmm. chancing on one of them. So I've watched three different films between watching The Conjuring in the cinema, which is very good this week, to sneak that in there. Um, I watched a film, a Romanian film called If I Want to Whistle, I Whistle, which is about um, a guy in a young defense that sounds, that sounds like That sounds like a real-world cinema. It is title. a proper... Yeah, I mean, when we talk about Euro... <laughs> I watched a Romanian film with that title. That's exactly what Steve is thinking about <laughs> exactly. when you mentioned world cinema to but him. That's, the, that's exactly what kind of film it is. A typical uh, long scenes, nothing really happening in them, just sitting around drinking coffee, no background music, nothing like that. It is typical Euro drama, um, which was okay. It was all right. I probably yeah. wouldn't recommend it to Steve. Um, no offence to Steve, I just don't think it's... You've, you've got to really be into a world cinema for that one. Um, and I watched something called Taboo, which is a Portuguese film, which I was quite looking forward to, but it's one of those films where if you... I've heard a lot of good things about yeah, it. Yeah, I had it's as well. It's the same top ten for last year, wasn't it? It was, yeah. But it's one of those films where I think if, if you called it surreal... It would kind of be like paying it a compliment. It didn't really deserve. It's just a bit, yeah. Anyway, it, that was a bit heavy going, and I didn't, oh. I didn't really get on with that one very well. But I did watch a film which I, when I asked for suggestions from Twitter, and Jerry actually mentioned this one from Brazil. I need to see a film from Brazil, um, a continent I've not really watched any films from, so thought it'd be a good chance. Brazil's got quite a big, rich sort of history of, of cinema. Absolutely outrageous. I know, I can't believe I've not seen any from there before, but... Such a um, rich cinematic history. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I watched Elite Squad, the first one. The first one, okay. Yeah, yeah. which is by um, Jose Padilla, I think that's how you say his name. Oh, Jose, isn't it? Because it's Portuguese. Jose Padilla. Um, It's basically... It it was made a few years ago, but it's set in 1997, um, just before the Pope visits Rio. And it's about a guy who's um, in charge of BOPE, which is uh, a special police operation battalion. Uh, battalion. And their job, what their their mission is, is to stop these drug dealers in a slum. That's essentially what they do. But it's kind of, the, the film itself exposes the... Um, well, it is the underhanded ways in which they deal with the drug dealers... So there's lots and lots of scenes of quite graphic torture in this film. I don't know what what I was really expecting from Elite Squad. I just thought, you know, maybe it would just kind of be a bit um, of a cop thriller kind of type film. Or, you know, you've got a group of these special police officers and they're trying to take out some drug dealers. Well, in your head, you've got in your mind lots of films that are from the West that deal with that kind of thing. Mm. And it's not like that at all, really. I mean, it is, it is very difficult to watch. You know, people were talking about the torture scenes in Zero Dark Thirty. Well, <laughs> that's just right. playground antics compared to stuff that goes on in Elite Squad. It's, oh, it's pretty grim to watch. And mostly because it, it, it's kind of based on what really happened to these people. Um, so, you know, your point about watching these films and they educate you and you learn about cultures and different places and times, this really kind of opens your eyes to, well, what was going on in Rio 
in the 90s. Mm. You know, I know it's just taken a very small snapshot in time, really. Well, I think it spans 12 months, but it's it's like a snapshot of time of what was happening during this place. And it, it was based on a, a sort of semi well, semi biographical or autobiographical, I can't remember, uh, book, which was you know taking testimony from a couple of people from inside uh, Wapi. And there's been a lot of criticism of, of that particular. I won't say paramilitary organisation, but that's essentially mm-hmm. what they are. There's been a lot of criticism about that organisation, the way that they deal with people, and there's a lot of... They basically execute people and then afterwards falsify things to, to come around. They're probably going to come up and fucking smash through my window. Mm-hmm. No, I've said that, but mm-hmm. they're very <laughs> dodgy. So, I mean, I haven't yeah. seen it. I know yeah. a lot about Mbappe um, and sort of the Brazilian paramilitary style of crime enforcement. And it's and it's worrying considering you know potentially allegedly similar things are kind of going on. We're trying to clear the favelas for for the World Cup next year as well. well and that's that whole... to get onto that a lot of the yeah. trouble and a lot of the you know the things in terms of the preparation for the Olympics and the World Cup are that there's extensive use of these people, shall we say? Um, there's some interesting stuff. If you want to do a bit of digging, there's some interesting stuff around that. But I mean. How critical is it, Owen, is what, what I was trying to get at, of, of them as a paramilitary force? Well, it's yeah, it's interesting because the way that it portrays some of the officers, it portrays them as being quite um, uh, honest but corruptible. Ultimately, everyone is kind of corruptible in this. So mm. it's you, the ones that set out with good intentions, and there are some in there that just want to be cops. They want to save the streets from, from drug dealers and drug peddlers, and that's what they want to do. Perhaps slightly naively, but it does then basically say, well, in the end, you know, they've become part of a gang, whether it's this, whether they've got these good intentions, what they think they're doing is right, the way they're doing it, this is what they're doing. Do you as a viewer think this is bad? And uh, yeah, I kind of felt a little bit, not upset, but just, it it really kind of makes you feel a bit... uh, shameful really that people would resort to doing what they do and he, but then it's trying to say well they are doing it because of this and then they show you what the drug dealers do and how they live and how they control people so you, mm. you, you're torn really so it is quite critical but it's not it's not just outright saying but these people are bad and these people are good and what they're doing is bad and what these people are doing is bad. It's, just, it's basically just showing you what's gone down. So it's even-handed. It's, it's yeah, quite pretty even, even-handed. Pretty even-handed, yeah. but very graphically even-handed. It'd be interesting to see what you think of it if you, once you've seen City of God as well and sort of how the two approaches mm. compare. That'd be interesting, I think. Right, yeah. And I know, actually, there's a sequel to Elite Squad, which I would... Um, which has been recommended to me as well, and people say it's actually better than the first film. So Elite Squad 2 was in the IMDb Top 250 for was, a yeah. while. Yeah, um, so it's definitely very highly rated. Yeah, it is. Um, so I'm, mm. I'm looking forward to that one, though. Um, I'm glad that I've watched Elite Squad, and that I've not got it out of the way, but I just feel like there, there were parts of it where you just wanted it to end because it was just so grim. And you feel like after after about 50 minutes you've got the message and then it kind of carries on a little bit longer which is a shame I think it overdoes the whole torture stuff a little bit but 
yeah, I'm I'm glad I watched it, and, and I, I do I do look forward to the next one. Anybody curious? There are also like if you if you search for Bope's B O P E, if you YouTube them, there's like videos of like snipers taking out teenage drug dealers and stuff. Oh my god! Well, I'm not sure yeah. I want to watch that. No, no I'm well, just that... saying it's not. It's a fantastical thing. There is you know mm. evidence online freely available of how, how realistic the film is. Yeah. Mm. Well, it sort of goes in a circle with the film around that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting how it portrays that. But um, yeah, I, I'm sure you'd love it, actually, Jerry, from the way you've, you've talked about it. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. Okay. Jerry, what, are you, what country are you looking at? Again, it was a bit of a struggle. I eventually went for Israel. I didn't believe, well, don't mess with Zohan doesn't count as an Israeli film. <laughs> 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 so I watched Waltz with Bashir, which I hadn't seen. Um, was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Oscar, I believe. Won all sorts of awards. Uh, basically, it's an animated documentary, which sounds really weird, but uh, essentially Ari Folman, who's the, the director, the writer, and also the narrator, he has a recurring nightmare, um, which he, he realises is linked to his, his time serving in the Israeli army in the first Lebanon war in 1982. And he can't remember any specific things about that conflict about what he did he has no sort of memories about events or his participation in things so he starts tracking down old friends old comrades and 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 trying to um you know piece this together i should point out i've made i've made a, an error there he doesn't have the recurring nightmare his friend has a recurring nightmare and that sort of triggers in him a recurring nightmare if that makes sense so his, his friend tells him about this recurring nightmare he has and that suddenly makes Ari start having nightmares around, you know, flashbacks and that kind of thing. But he he, he starts piecing together what happened. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I didn't know anything about the actual event that that is the central event of it. Um, essentially, his his memory that he he can sort of he can touch, but he can't quite get to, uh, are around a massacre, which is a very sort of. It turns out from my research after watching the film you know it's a very famous massacre uh, had massive effects in terms of international repercussions and, and Israeli society and you know inquiries and all that kind of thing um, it's really 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 powerful film I think a lot of that is to the fact to, due to the fact that it's, it is animated um, and it's animated simply because that's the only way it can work you know it's not an animation for the sake of being animated it, it's that mm. in terms of the artistic fulfillment of what he wants to do this is the only way he can make it work he's got dream sequences you know he's got all this sort of interlinking and and it just it can't work or it wouldn't be as effective if it was in sort of you know real people doing it however most of the people who are voicing it are real people voicing themselves and that, that comes through the animation method's really interesting actually it looks like it's rotoscoping but it's actually not um very realistic looking uses uh, Adobe Flash, which I found interesting when I started reading it. <laughs> interesting that a full film was done using Adobe Flash, and they essentially made like hundreds of drawings and sort of moved them around uh, amongst each other to make give the illusion of movement, and then added in stuff with Adobe Flash. Very interesting. The other interesting thing is one of the animators is right-handed, but uh, found that his drawings looked too smooth and nice, so he drew everything with his left hand, <laughs> make it rougher. Um, and because he felt that that style fitted better, I'm not sure which one of those it was. Whether whether it's just one of the animators, whether it's loads of them, whether it was the key bit or whatever. But still, that was a cool fact. I like that. <laughs> um, 
it ends with actually, you know, as much as his animation, the final scene is real footage, um, which is what really sort of brings it home as a, as a documentary, I suppose. I mean, I didn't know anything about it going into it, so it slowly became apparent that this was a documentary and not just a film. Uh, mm. And, you know, the the end is incredibly powerful, and it's all the more powerful for, you know, the animation moving up to it, and then you, you're confronted with the reality as well. Um, I, I don't want to give anything away about it, because it, 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 the, the mystery that's sort of tangled up at the heart of it, obviously I didn't know anything about it, so it had that mystery to me. Some people watching it might have known about it, probably know more about the history of you know the Middle East and Israel than I do. Um, but it was it was very very interesting, very powerful, and I mean I don't want to hype it too much, but it's up there with Apocalypse Now for showing the futility of war and violence. It's it's the only film I can think to compare it to in terms of the sort of the way it it shows war and the effects it has and the, the far far-reaching effects of war as well the only thing that, that that is like it is apocalypse now really and um it reminded me as well of persepolis which i don't know if anybody else has seen mm-hmm. um which again that's an iranian film um similar sort of you know uh, looking back on on the islamic revolution in iran uh it, it has elements of that it's it's, it's like persepolis meets apocalypse now uh, but it's, it's, it's better than that I mean I, it cheapens it slightly to compare it to other films but you know just you've got a touching point it's definitely in the apocalypse now school of portraying you know what war is like rather than um, I don't know you know Rambo or you know something like that it's it's very very harsh it's unrelenting um, but ultimately it's a really really good watch it's well worth it um, and I'm quite, quite disappointed in myself that I didn't watch it until now to be honest sounds interesting uh, Mm. Yeah, uh, so up next we've got our triple bill so uh, yes triple bill this week each of the podcasters except for me because I don't do world cinema yet I might have been convinced tonight you never know is going to pick their three favourite actors or actresses from world cinema and tell us why they are their favourite actor or actress from world cinema. Uh, so let's go in reverse order from um, what we've been watching. Uh, Jerry, start us off, Pete. Okay. Um, I, in order to narrow this down, I implemented a little rule on myself, which was that the person couldn't have had a leading role in a Hollywood film. Now, not necessarily, you know, the definition of leading is loose because obviously people turn up in films and things like that. But, for instance, Javier Bardem, I wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't be included. Uh, Christoph Waltz, I wouldn't include. Um, even, um, I would I would go as far as say Roberto Benigni because of the sort of the recognition he got at the Oscars and, you know, the fact that he was in a Pink Panther film. Um, yeah. That kind of, he felt a bit borderline, so I, I ruled him out as well. Um, so I did restrict it down because there's a lot of people that I could have picked and a lot of obvious ones and I wanted to go for the sort of slightly less obvious ones. So the first one uh, is a guy called Luis Tosar. Uh, don't know if any of you... Tosar? Yeah, exactly. Grow <laughs> <Throw> up. <laughs> He's like um, a Spanish James Nesbitt. He looks like, you know... 
<laughs> well, Tulsa then. He's <laughs> Jimmy Nesbitt, but like Spanish, you know, he's, he, he just has that look about him. Um, he's obviously I always rave about um, Take My Eyes, uh, which is one of the best films ever made. But he's done a, a whole wealth of, of films in Spanish. He, he did have a bit part in Miami Vice, but I'll let him off for that. Um, he did a fantastic film a few years ago called uh, Cell 211, which actually you know got a bit of exposure around here. Don't know if anybody's seen that, no? No. And he was in a film called Even the Rain, opposite uh, Gael García Bernal, who again was another actor I would have considered, but is a little bit too famous these, you know, in these parts. He's just fantastic. I think largely I try to think of ones where there was a standout performance that I could, or at least you know at least one standout performance that I could say, look, if you want to know about them, go and see it. So take my eyes and sell to eleven. Go and watch it. He's absolutely fantastic. Really powerful actor. Very intense. Um, he's he's just brilliant. I tried to get Take My Eyes um, from my local CEX the other day for £1.50. I thought, Jerry recommended this, that's a bargain, and they couldn't find the disc anywhere in the store. Uh, it's because it. it's so good, that's why. I was <laughs> absolutely gutted. So I've still not seen it, but I'm, I'm still trying to. Yeah, find it, it's well worth it. Um, second one is, uh, again, I tried to pick it on people who haven't been in much and who have a standout performance to talk about. And I went for trying to break up the Spanish monotony because that was the easiest thing for me to do. I thought, right, I'll go for a different country. And the the only person I could really think of was Bruno Ganz, who nice. everybody will know as Adolf Hitler in Downfall. Uh, he's, that performance alone is just it's, it's so worth it. it he's, it's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen by anyone. In, in film, uh, he's also he has a little role in the reader, but again I'll let him off for that. Um, he did uh, the Bader Meinhof complex uh, mm-hmm. a few years back, uh, which you know is a look at the, the Red Army faction uh, in the 60s and 70s, and that is a that's a, well, it's worth watching. It's worth watching. Um, again, it's it's the it's the performance, it's the intensity that chosen for, it's the fact that he just embodies that character and he's so believable it's terrifying it's frightening how good he is as Adolf Hitler mm. um, and, and, and it's the human aspect he bring, brings to someone who we all know you know everyone it's drummed into us was just evil incarnate and it's the fact that he dares make him a human character that's quite breathtaking at times yeah I think that's what I was, that's what I was going to say the, the, the best thing about his performance is he makes that into such a rounded character. It's not some monster. It's you know, it's not it's not this great world dominating leader. He's just a weak man in a bunker who's who's scared and frightened and angry at the world. And it, it, it's just incredible to watch. The another really interesting fact about him that I found out whilst looking at him is he turned down the role of Oscar Schindler for Schindler's List. Mm. which is fascinating really because you think that's it I think I don't know when Downfall was it's a good 10 years between yeah. Schindler's List and Downfall I mean, I mean how different would that have been? Yeah <laughs> Very different characters aren't they? Yeah <laughs> I hope it's not reflective on his uh, political no I'm sure it's not <laughs> Oh I'll win <laughs> Yeah I had to go there uh, Sorry Yeah he's he's fantastic again Downfall anybody who's not seen it 
incredible. You you have seen him in those bloody YouTube videos. Mm. Yeah, he's seen. Yeah, we've all seen it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that kind of does belittle the fantastic work he does in the film. Yeah, indeed. And the final one, obviously, I had to pick a, a Spanish person again because I know too much about Spanish cinema. I tried to pick an actress um, because I wanted to sort of be a bit more diverse and, and open to our female brethren. You know, in, in the you think Doctor Who and James Bond should be female? So. <laughs> I think they should. I just think the possibility should be considered, Steve. That's all. That's all. Uh, and I went for Lola Duenas, who is probably familiar to people who've watched any sort of any of the big ticket Spanish films. James, you'll know who she is. Um, it, was she in uh, um, that terrible? Uh, was in in that air uh, flight attendant thing. attendant thing. I'm so excited. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Um, she is in that. Um, She's also in The Sea Inside, which I talk about all the time. She's in Talk To Her, which I talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. She's in Fall Bear, which is um, probably Penelope Cruz's best performance. Uh, if no one's seen Fall Bear, you probably all haven't, have you? Because none of you watch them. I've got it on my TV. I've got it recorded. I've at least got that far. Shocking. Um, but, she, yeah, she's... I mean, I've seen some of her earlier work, which is a bit more... Um, I think it, it's more sort of familiar to if you're familiar with Spanish stuff, you're going to get that a bit more than some of the more accessible work. But she's a fantastic actress. She's really, really in touch with her emotions and very vivid. And and you know, she brings she brings people to life. And there's sort of a weird joy and insecurity about her that always comes through. And and it's just she's she's just really engaging to watch on screen. Um, and she's she's fantastic in everything she is, and she did a, a really great film um, called Me Too. Um, oh God, about five years ago now, um, which is essentially it's it's a, a guy who's just graduated from university, um, and he works at the the, the DSS basically. Uh, and on his first day of work, he falls in love with Lola Duenas' character, and Daniel actually has Down syndrome. Um, and it's it's worth watching just purely for the performance of uh, the lad whose name I can't remember now who plays um, the guy with that with Down syndrome opposite Lola Duenas. She's fantastic. She's in loads of films. If you're gonna go anywhere, go Volva, go talk to her. Probably, um, I would I would say Me Too as well. But there's there's a good three or four there as well. You know to to go to go at. She's fantastic in the scene inside. So yeah. Trying not to pick three Spaniards. I'm sorry, I, I failed. I got two, but just about managed to scrape a German in there as well. Okay, Owen, uh, your list, please. Okay. Um, yeah, a bit like Jerry, I've I've sort of put some self-imposed rules on this one. I wanted to choose some people a bit different to who my immediate first choices would have been. So people who just came into my head straight away. Um, so avoiding people like Jackie Chan. Uh, Andy Lau, Tony Lung, Cho Yun-Fat, those kind of actors who, just the ones that I just thought would be a bit too easy, I think. And I also wanted to make sure I'd seen at least three of their roles to be able to say that, you know, yep, this is their definitive role and this is why I've chosen them. Um, so my first choice uh, is still an Asian cinema star, but it's um, Zhang Zi, who uh, is a bit of a cop out, I suppose, because I've only seen her in six films and I suppose out of that, only three of those would poss- poss- possibly four would be considered world cinema. Um, 
But she's probably best known for her roles in um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and she was in House of Blind Daggers and Hero, uh, and she was also in Memoirs of a Geisha. She's, yeah, she's, I mean, she has appeared in Hollywood films. She was in Rush Hour 2, and she was in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated film that came out a while ago. But she's also been in stuff <laughs> since, like, um, One Car Wise 2046, and, you know, I hate to, you know, bring it into just, because she's an actress, but her look is just, it's, it seems really undermining to to have to say it, but I've never seen her be anything less than stunning in a film. I think she's just got a kind of, a certain amount of grace about her that she brings to every role that I've seen her in. And it's hard to kind of imagine an actress that's similar to her in that sense, or one that you could compare her to from the way she sort of carries herself through films. Um, I think it's kind of, it's, it's pretty unique. I, I don't know. I, like I said, I, I think it's a little bit undermining to just point out that that's her best quality. But I think it's just there's just something about her look that makes her seem quite um, quite special, I guess. And um, but she's a fantastic actress as well. I don't know if any of you have seen her in in stuff like that, particularly in Memoirs of a Geisha, where she's just yeah, just that's a great breathtaking film. in that. She's brilliant, brilliant performance. Um, so yeah, she she was my first choice. It, but I like I say, I've only seen her in six films, so I was, it was a bit, bit cheeky to put her in there after trying to come up with some rules to put on myself. Um, but she's she's due out in another film this year, which is it's got quite good reviews actually. It's by One Core Eye as well, and it's called uh, The Grand Master, and it features Tony Leung and Kong Lee. So um, looking forward to that. It's another Ip Man story though. There's quite a few of them about, but um, yeah, really looking forward to it. And soon there's something a bit more actiony again. Because she's she's been in like I said in stuff like Crouching Tiger where she's shown that she's got a bit of range and she can do all these stunts and things. So yeah, I'm quite quite looking forward to seeing her in something else. Um, but in an attempt to kind of limit the number of Asian actors and actresses that I was going to include on my list and to also diversify a little bit, uh, my second choice is an actor who I've only really started to notice in stuff this past year. And I'm sure this is where I'm going to cross over with James, actually. Uh, I think James is yeah, probably... I can feel this one coming. Yeah, Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Danish actor. Um, he's probably best known, I think, in sort of um, a wider sense, as the bad guy, Le Chiffre, in Casino Royale. It's probably his yes. most recognisable performance. Yeah, I think. I think that's fair. Um, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, but he he's excellent. Really, truly excellent as the teacher. Uh, the, uh, who's accused of child molestation in um, a Danish film called The Hunt, which came out last year. Which one of my favourite films was one of James' favourite films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've also loved him in. I don't know if you've seen the the TV series Hannibal, where he plays Hannibal. I've seen Lecter. the first couple, uh, and he's clearly brilliant. Clearly, I mean, he's just got. He's just a touch of class in that film. That yeah. in that series, everything really actually about that program is quite highbrow for a sort of American yeah. crime drama series but it's he's just so good in that i mean it's hard to say how, how brilliant he is and it's partly because of that that i've sort of thought yeah he's one of, he's actually one of my favorite actors at the moment i think like i said about um ryan gosling a, a few mm. podcasts ago a few months ago now and i saw place beyond the pines and i thought actually he's becoming one of my favorite actors just from like a performance in two films similarly i, I watched that recently i did you what did you think um I don't quite know what to make of it, really. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I think I liked it. Yeah. It's weird. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I was really impressed with it. Oh, I enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. I've I've seen Mab. Uh, so the other thing is, last year he was also in a Royal Affair, which so he he starred in two of my favourite films last year. Although I didn't see a Royal Affair until this year, otherwise it would have been right up in my list. But he, yeah, he played Musketeers, James. Is that what you're? Pardon? Is that are you referring to the Three Musketeers? <laughs> no, I'm referring to a Royal Affair, not the Three Musketeers. No, I've not seen him in the Three Musketeers. Although I bet he's good in the Three Musketeers. Um, you might be pushing it there. Okay. Um, but he was also um, brilliant in, and again, talking about Ryan Gosling and kind of the films he's been making with Nicholas Winding Refn. By the way, I saw um, Only God Forgives today. Oh, yeah. I loved it. Okay. Um, I can see why other, I can see why a lot of people hate it. But Did the you film walk it out most rem- blood. Pardon? Did you walk out in a pool of blood? Uh, no, no, I did not. No, basically, you make it sound like there's blood coming out of the screen. There's not much violence. It's not. It's not as violent as I think some people have made it out to be. Either that, or I'm very desensitised. There's some pretty horrible violence in it, but um, but actually, the film it really reminded me of was the film that Nicholas Winding Refn made with Mads Mikkelsen back in 2009, Valhalla Rising, um, which I then got home tonight and watched just before we did this. And that actually made me think that was the film I wanted Ben Wheatley's film in England to be. They're actually very, very... Have you seen Valhalla Rising, Owen? No, unfortunately. I think you'd really like... You really liked a field in England. I watched it and I was like, oh, okay, this is what I wanted a field in England to be like, and it's still not perfect. But um, and what I'm starting to see is Maz Mikkelsen, he's worked with um, Nicholas Winding Refn a lot, and... He's kind of like when Nicholas Winding Refn goes back to Europe, he uses Mads Mikkelsen in the way that he uses Ryan Gosling, and mm. they they also did the Pusher series together, and yeah. they've got a new Pusher film coming out soon as well. Um, well, yeah, he I mean, he's been in almost—is it thirty films? He's been in, I think. Uh, yeah, it's quite a lot of films. He's got um, a back catalogue. Big back catalogue. Um, he was in the pretty poor Jerry Bruckheimer. King Arthur films right. from a long time ago. Um, interestingly, he seems to be um, Pixar's man for the Danish dubs <laughs> as well, because he, he dubbed Randall Boggs in Monsters, Inc. for Denmark, and he dubbed Chick Hicks in Cars as well for Denmark. Um, but yeah, no, he uh, he's just such a great character actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so much charisma. And one more film I want to mention that he's absolutely brilliant in is Flame and Citroen which is about the Danish resistance during World War Two, And it's not really um, a resistance that a lot of people know about. And again, going back to this idea about how world cinema can actually take you somewhere and teach you things and, you know, give you, you know, without wanting to make it sound like watching films should be like going back to school. But mm. I had no idea about the Danish resistance. And just watching this film about these two, and again, based on a true life story of... Um, Two almost like Bonnie and Clyde, but two men um, <laughs> style uh, vigilante, re- super, uh, kind of celebrity resistance uh, men back in uh, the Second World War. That's a really, really great film as well. Now, I, I'm glad we've had some crossover on Mads Mikkelsen because he is, yeah, he's just one of my big cinematic things at the yeah, moment. Yeah, but, very exciting, yeah. Uh, exciting actor at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So my final choice kind of breaks all of my rules, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't see them in at least three things, but that's only because she was she only ever starred in one movie in her life, 
Um, Whoa. Yeah, it's a French actress. This is going to... Uh, I'm getting more and more hipster. The more I least. think I think I know what she starred in. I think I'm going to... Yeah, yeah, I think I know what French she starred actress, in. French yeah. actress. She kind of made a, a, her name... Silent. A silent film, yeah. She made yeah, her name yeah. on stage, really. In Argentina as well, actually, funny enough. But it's Maria Falconetti who played the title character in Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1928 silent film. And one of my favourite films of all time is yeah. Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, it's an absolutely phenomenal performance. And I don't even mean comparatively to other silent movies. It is just, it's one of the greatest film performances ever. And I think it's up there with people like Brando and Pacino in Godfather or Charlize Theron in, in Monster or Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. I mean, it, it's on a level with them, perhaps even beyond some of them. Um, the, the whole film is just really haunting. And I think part of the hopeless naivety that Falconetti brings to Joan of Arc is just... I mean, it emphasises every point the film is trying to make through every minute movement or like tear that comes down her face or the way she sort of sort of moves ahead or the looks that she gives people or staring into space. and It's just absolutely as close to perfect a film and as close to perfect a performance, I think, that you're likely to see. And I think it's also worth mentioning it because the, the role that world cinema, as in France, Germany, Italy, um, Japan, uh, Russia, they've all brought to... Uh, cinema as a whole their contribution is probably not really acknowledged as much as it should be you know mm. particularly early french films and um, and carl theodore dreyer's <laughs> role in, in cinema as well shouldn't be sort of overlooked it's just one of those films that without without this and without the impact it made i know it went missing for a long time and now the, the cuts that we get nowadays are from various different you know film that people have found and kind of stitched back together again but it's it's just oh, absolutely amazing film and i really recommend even people who don't really like silent films but to people who don't normally like silent films anyway i usually recommend comedies to get going because they're quite easy mm. if you've not seen any silent films try something like chaplin and then try the passion of joan of arc it is a phenomenal film I I remember looking at this when you talked about it last time, Owen. Didn't yeah. she didn't she die fairly young as well? I mean, not Joan of Arc. Yeah, mid. Yeah, both. Yeah, she died uh, mid forties, I think, forty five ish, forty five years old, I think she was. Um, but she, yeah, I mean, this film came out in nineteen twenty eight, so she sort of did one film and then none others, no others. Oh, so right. she, so she, she she just didn't make it. I thought she died. That's she, like, Make any more films? No, she she wanted she wanted to do stage acting. She went to um to Argentina and opened up her own theatre. So she's um got quite an interesting character. There's a lot to read up about her actually, uh, Maria Falconetti. She's you know some interesting story of hers. But um I won't go too much into it because I'll probably get some details wrong and we'll be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so James, one of your lists has been taken. Yeah, so you get to hear less of me now, so that's good. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, What's the rest of the yeah. list? Okay, I, I just want to say I've clearly done the whole. I've done the whole mainstream thing. Well, not mainstream as such. Basically, my rules were they had to be actors or actresses that make me want to go and watch their films. So if I hear that they're in a film, I'm going to go and watch it pretty much regardless of what the film sounds like. Um, 
and also obviously they can have been in Hollywood films but I'm picking them primarily on their their world cinema performances so we've had Mads Mikkelsen um, who kind of has crossed that boundary between world cinema and Hollywood Uh, another one who has who's uh, my next choice is uh, the French actress uh, Marion Cotillard (laughs) who I raved about last year in Rust and Bone which was my favourite film of the year and I still think her performance was probably that they were it was the best performance I saw last year in my in my humble opinion um she's uh she's been in a huge amount of films that um I didn't even realize I've not seen I've not seen her that much in the English language films that's what I found quite weird um I didn't know at the time but I really liked her in the original taxi films so the Luke Besson um crazy car chase comedy action films which the first two are absolutely brilliant the last the third one is pretty <laughs> terrible um uh, but she plays um the main character uh his, his kind of long suffering main character is a taxi driver who has souped up his car to ridiculous speeds and he drives around marseille kind of you know in re- he teams up with a cop to stop crime. It's a ridiculous premise for a film, but they're really good, fun films. And she plays his long-suffering girlfriend in those films, um, Lily. And that's actually, that's when I first saw her. But I didn't kind of go, "Oh, look, that's a major star." I just look back now and go, "Yeah, she was she was really good in those films." Um, she's also absolutely brilliant in a very long engagement, which was um, uh, Jeunet's follow-up to Amelie and another actress that very very nearly made it onto my list was Audrey Tateau who I adore for a huge number of reasons um but you know that was her film but uh Marion Cotillard was uh nominated for a Caesar Award which is the French BAFTAs for best supporting actress in that film and she she's really really fantastic in that film as well um Little White Lies again it's a it's a it's a very French film, and uh, you know, Owen's used the phrase Eurodrama already, and there is an element of that going on in Little White Lies, and I know Owen thought there was a little element of that going on in Rust and Bone as well. Maybe I just like um, Eurodramas a little bit. But, um, you know, she, she's always been, for me, whenever she's delivered a performance in a French film, it's been pretty much flawless. I, I, and weirdly, I've not I've still not seen her film that she won the Oscar for. And, you know, it's so rare for... We mentioned Robert Benigni earlier, but it's so rare for someone to win Best Actor or Actress in a in a world cinema performance, in a foreign language performance at the Oscars. But she did in 2007 for a uh, performance as Edith Piaf in Le Vie en Rose, which I've now, just this week, managed to get hold of, but not managed to watch watch it yet. So I'm very much looking forward to that. What I will say is she can be a little bit up and down when it comes to Hollywood films. Um, most recently uh, in Inception and The Dark Knight Rises, um, she wasn't necessarily terrible in that. She had one terrible scene in The Dark Knight Rises, um, but she wasn't really a standout performer in those films. Um, and it's the same with... Um, what else did I see? Uh, I've seen her in Public Enemies recently, which she was all right in. But it seems when she's speaking French, she's able to concentrate more on her acting or something. I don't know what the difference is, but she 
whenever I see her in a French film, absolutely fantastic. She's also in uh, Woody Allen's um, Midnight in Paris again, absolutely fantastic. Like, she she just I, in a way she reminds me of Penelope Cruz in that she has she has a, a very striking look. She isn't what some people would class as you know the traditional stereotypical Hollywood leading lady look about her and she uses that to her advantage I think um, but she, she's got fantastic She, it's great when you can see someone who can act with their eyes um, and I noticed that specifically in Rust and Bone last year someone who can hold your attention on screen for five minutes without actually uttering a word that to me is the sign of a, a really good actor and then it doesn't even matter if you're watching a world cinema film you know uh, if if you, if they don't even need subtitles it, it doesn't they they get through that language barrier um so yeah Marion Cotillard is is my choice and then my final choice is uh, again has already been mentioned uh, by Owen as being an obvious one but I can't help it because this was basically my introduction to world cinema was when I lived in a little flat in X. I lived in a bed sit in Exeter when I was 16 and there was this video shop down the road which specialised in independent and world cinema and I felt like I was living in London <laughs> or something like that. It was incredible. I used to go there and one of my mates at college worked there and he got me on to the works of a director called John <laughs> Woo and specifically the films of a man that we know as Chagon Fat who th- that that was my introduction to world cinema and that's when I discovered films that I never thought anyone would ever make it uh, on fat uh born in hong kong he he was born in fi- 1955 he's he's getting a bit now yeah i know yeah, depressing. um it is quite depressing and it's because when you look back at those early films what, what i think are great about the early on fat films and not only is it was it the quality but the run the sheer run of brilliant films, so you know, from A Better Tomorrow to City on Fire to God of Gamblers to Once the Thief to Hard Boiled, um, you know that run there. Um, a some of the best action films just made ever, in my opinion. Uh, there was a period in the early nineties. I think other, uh, career of uh, South Korea has become a massive area of making films. Um, Japan has got its own kind of culture and things like that. But there was a period, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, was where everything that was brilliant about Asian cinema was taking place. And Cherry on Fat was pretty much at the heart of that. Some of the... Hard Boiled, to me, is up there with the best action films of all time. It's an incredible, uh, twisty cop, uh, cop versus criminal thriller... Um, and yeah, to be honest, I hope some some of you guys have seen Hard Boiled. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah as, as to keep, and the great thing is, Chaeyoung Fat isn't just a hard man. There, he brings a humility. He brings a sense of humour. He brings a humanity mm. to the role, which, even though he's speaking a completely different language, really comes across. There's almost a cheekiness, a twinkle in his eye in a lot of those early films, which bring them to life one of my favorite ones is a film called god of gamblers um which i rewatched again last week because i'd not seen it for i think 12 <laughs> years or so um i said and basically he is just this guy who is brilliant at gambling that's that's 
basically what it is. But it's a Hong Kong gangster film meets Rain Man because there's an attempt on his life and he suffers amnesia and he becomes this kind of idiot savant and a group of gangsters. And I think Andy Lau, I think Andy okay. Lau is one of the these kind of um, uh, these low uh, small time criminals find him and discover his his gift for still being able to play cards and gamble really well. So they use him in a kind of Rain Man style, but then he ultimately comes back to become the god of gamblers and take down this international crime lord and everything like that. It's got... It, the great thing, it does humour, it does brilliant action. Um, and and he, he could do the act. That was a great thing. He did his own stunts. He didn't... Not like Jackie Chan in a sense, but, you know, he he got his hands dirty. He fell out of buildings and things like that. He had a brilliant sense of humour. He's got great, great charisma on screen. And he was... And what made it a shame for me was that he then went to Hollywood and made... A couple of films like, for example, The Replacement Killers with Mia Sorvino, and I've only seen half of it and I had to turn it off, Bulletproof Monk with um, Sean mm. William Scott. And it, it felt film, like, that is. Yeah, it felt like such a shame that that happened to him. So I am putting you in literally for his world cinema work here um, and then luckily he came back he kind of went to Hollywood made a couple of films obviously didn't enjoy the experience because he then came back and um, made one of the best films uh, to come out of China ever in my opinion Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon um, he was absolutely fantastic and he brought a newfound maturity to his performance there as well um, I, I love Chai on Fat I will watch him in anything um, and he he the reason he's number one on my list is he basically sparked my interest in cinema that took place in a different language in a different country and basic or a different universe to what I'd known before. Have you seen him in anything more recently? Because I saw Let the Bullets Fly, which is I've not seen that. I've seen him in Confucius. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Which he was very good in. I, I wasn't. I wasn't entirely sold on Confucius, but he was yeah. very, very good at it. Um, and apparently he is... Oh, yeah, he's in one of the um, Pirates of the yeah. Caribbean films, but, I've, yeah, no, I didn't bother. Well, in, I didn't bother with that. In Let the Bullets Fly, I think when it came out, it was one of... It might have been the highest-grossing Chinese film ever. Okay. And he... It's interesting, because he, he's gone back to being um, the sort of funny uh, side of... You know the characters that he plays. He plays um oh, right. like a, a corrupted town mayor, and yeah. it's, it's basically let the bullets fly. It's like a Chinese western, and oh yeah, brilliant! Oh, it's I'll interesting. Yeah, I, I think some of the the humour in it is a bit goofy, but he's he's yeah. very good in it. He's very funny. So yeah. oh, that's nice to yeah. see. Oh, good. Okay, um, that's all for um triple bill then. Uh, we've got one little break. But then we've got some recommendations and tell you what's going on next week as well. Okay, so recommendations for what to watch uh, this coming week. And let's start then with Jerry. Okay, um, obviously we're going for sort of two films from a country, aren't we? So what I decided to go for was Sweden, because Spain was obvious. Um, I'm trying to pick two films that were very different to each other. We've talked about Let the Right One In uh, before. We've talked about it today. I don't need to say too much about it. Absolutely magnificent vampire romance horror kind of 
coming of age film. It, it's everything. Um, brilliant, brilliant film. And at the other end of the spectrum uh, is one of the greatest films ever made, uh, Wild Strawberries, which oh. very, few, yeah, very few people have actually seen. Uh, no. oh. I ended up watching it. It was on Film 4 during the Bergman season. Oh my God, this film is fantastic. Um, it's basically an elderly uh, university professor uh, you know, he, he's sort of he's coming towards the end of his life, and he, he has to kind of confront the fact that he's been a bit of a knob to everyone, and, and his his life has been quite empty. And there's some real sort of existentialist sort of dream hallucination scenes, and uh, you know, flashbacks to his life and his fact. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful! I cannot recommend it enough. If you haven't seen it, you, uh, just don't even watch anything else. Well, watch Partridge, but other than that. <laughs> Watch Wild Strawberries because oh, it's just wonderful. One of the greatest films ever, 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 ever. So yeah, Sweden. There you go. Get them both on DVD or something. I don't know what they're on. Let the right one in. I'll be streaming. I'm not so sure about Wild Strawberries, but find them. Find them. James. Um, I'm gonna pick Germany, um, and I'm going to go for two, two real personal favourites of mine, um, and both very, very different. The first one I mentioned. Last year, when I went to Bowie Fest, and it was the first time I'd seen this film, it's a film called Christiana F, um, or uh, and the Children of the Barhof Zoo. Uh, it is an early 80s German film, uh, a West German film, because it was before reunification, uh, telling the story of a 14-year-old girl who gets drawn into a world of trouble uh, and drugs and prostitution. Um, it's it is a, an emotional kicking to the stomach, especially when you consider it's based on the memoirs of a real uh, young young girl, um, and it starred a fourteen year old girl. Uh, it, uh, this kind of film just wouldn't be made these days because pretty much she acts out a lot of pretty nasty stuff as a fourteen year old girl. It's just, it's a very very shocking film. Um, the other reason I love this film is it features loads of music by David Bowie, including a live performance at one point because they go to a David Bowie gig. So that's one very dark film from Germany's past. Um, the other film I'm going to recommend is Goodbye Lenin, which stars Daniel Brühl, who you will know as the German marksman from uh, Inglorious Bastards, who becomes a bit of a film star. Um, he's also in Ron Howard's Rush as Nicky Lauder. Uh, coming out later this year as well. Um, this He's a young man, and it's around the time that the Berlin Wall's about to fall. He's protesting, uh, and his mum is a very... They live in East Germany. She's a very, very devout communist. She's very, very devoted to uh, the, the communist ideals, devoted to uh, East Germany as a communist country. While she sees him protesting, she is so shocked, she falls into a coma, and... During her coma, East and West Germany become reunited. Um, but the doctors, when she comes out of her coma, the doctors uh, warned that finding out about that could shock her so much it would kill her. So her son sets about trying to recreate ye olde East Germany in, in her little flat. Uh, it's a really, really heartwarming story. Um, complete opposite of, to the other film that I mentioned. Uh, lo- some lovely performances and a great soundtrack from Jan Tiersen who also did the soundtrack to Amelie as well. Definitely well worth a, a look. It, it's very funny. 
um, and very touching. I find your lack of uh, the lives of others disturbing, James. <laughs> I, I love the lives of others, but I had to go for the ones that I personally uh, love the most. Uh, and I, I, I just, and I, I also think that most people have seen the lives of others. Well, not most people have seen it, but it seemed an obvious choice for Germany, as with Downfall. I thought I'd choose two that I didn't think people would have seen. Is that right, Jerry? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, uh, Owen. Um, well, I was going to choose Germany as well, but because James has done it, I'll, um, I've gone with a different angle. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking perhaps we should have done something from a different continent, really, but I've ended up with choosing Russia as my films, mainly to tie into... Um, well, it's Soviet Union, really. It was to tie into the fact I chose a silent film. I thought I'd pick two silent films to recommend, seeing as it was one of the birthplaces of you know modern cinema and, and all that jazz. Um... First one, quite a, an obvious choice, I think, for recommending a Russian silent film, uh, Battleship Potemkin, which pretty much everyone yeah. who's into silent films, it's one of the first ones they watch. Um, it's from 19... for late at night this week at some point. Is it? Oh, brilliant. There you go. So people got no excuse. Yeah. Not to Short, you know, guide for like in the next few days. Don't know whether the pod will be out in time, but yeah, it's on film for quite a lot anyway. Yeah. Well, it's just a... It's a fantastic film isn't it I mean uh, directed by Sergei Einstein uh, in 1925 based on real of Eisenstein sorry yeah slip of the dog based on um, true events that took place during the Russian revolution in the early 1900s just brilliant film and I can't recommend that one enough and credited with the invention of the montage montage, yeah and very Wheel very recognisable scene which has been spoofed and parodied and copied and used in various other films yeah. as well from, from then on involving a pram and stuff so yeah, Your death so, sex, yeah. Yes. that was the first one and I thought well what, what can I recommend that's still a silent film but very different that's from Russia um, <laughs> so a, a, an opposite kind of film is one that tends to crop up on lots of these um, you know sight and sound poles and stuff uh, from 1929 The Man with a Movie Camera um which is interesting. It's a kind of documentary, I suppose, um, of a bloke, and he's got a video camera, and he goes around the Soviet Union filming just everyday stuff, um, using loads of different um, editing techniques and shooting very different things, and it's just very different kind of film to pretty much every other documentary you've seen. I think it helps as well that it's in, it's all a silent film, so you've just got, you know a melody playing in the background rather than any kind of sound effects and stuff and it's just very interesting to see that that point in time in Russia and realising well mm. you know it's not too different to what the rest of Europe was like in that time you think of all these different things that are going on in the yeah. Soviet Union during the 1920s 1930s and actually it looks kind of relatable almost so yeah it's a very interesting film it's, I think it's one of these though that usually comes up with lots of Snooty um, it's film in critics. The, pick, it's in the top ten films of all time according to the last sight and sound. Yeah, decade I mean, I wouldn't go quite that far, <laughs> but you know, what do I know about all the different techniques and how revolutionary yeah. that was? All I thought was it was quite an interesting documentary. So yeah, the man with the movie camera is worth a watch, and Battleship Potemkin probably better. Okay, um, well that's all for uh, this week's podcast. Uh, so I'd like to thank everyone who's contributed, listened. Uh, or helped out in any way. Um, yeah, James, before we go, what's up next week? 
And next week, um, we've got, we're reviewing uh, Alpha Papa, the new Alan Partridge film. We'll probably also sneak in reviews of the new Nicholas Winding Refn film, Only God Forgives, and possibly The Conjuring, which appears to be a horror film that people I, like. I so I might it, have to go yeah, and watch that as well. It's got fantastic... Re- it's got, like, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's Tomato really good. I know we, we sort of went to see um, Sinister last year, and... Yeah. Better than Sinister, better yeah. Than that, and I liked Sinister, so it's... Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, probably a few other films. Who knows? One of us might go and see The Heat. There you go. That's something to entice you I keep you thinking, in. though, I should see that, but I just can't bring myself to... I can't... I kind of think it might be alright, I don't know. I quite liked Bridesmaids, mm. so we'll see. Okay. Right, yes, so join us next week for Alpha Papa. The Fail Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com and you can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at at failedcritics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.